First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. We have a couple more weeks in First Timothy, and then we're going to go right into Second Timothy. Second Timothy is going to be good as well because it's a book about how to persevere and endure in life. How to follow through with things, how to finish well. Some good stuff in 2 Timothy that we'll be sharing probably month of November and December and then into January. By the way, I haven't even shared this on Sunday, but just while it comes to my mind, because we are coming to the end of October. Uh, So just a couple things. First of all, uh, church picnics coming up uh, Saturday. Uh, Don't forget about the ladies' Bible study starting back up tomorrow night. If you still want to be a part of it, you can, right? Okay. Do they need to see you though, right? All right. So gals, if you haven't signed up yet, want to be a part of the Settled Hearts and Troubled Times series out of Philippians, more than welcome to, to join us. Don't forget about the day of prayer on November the 4th. The sign-up sheet will be out again on Sunday. And then this is what I was talking about. Looking ahead, um, we will run uh, our Wednesday night Um, the first two weeks in December, but then we'll take the last two weeks of December off, uh, as far as Wednesday nights go. And this is just one of those years that Christmas happens to fall on a Sunday. So what we're going to do, and this is what we did a couple years ago when Christmas fell on a Sunday is we're going to encourage everybody to come on Christmas Eve to the Christmas Eve service. There will be no, at the Oasis, no Christmas Day service that Sunday. We will have service, obviously, on New Year's Day. I'm not going to skip two Sundays in a row. Uh, But we won't have Christmas uh, services on Christmas Day. So, Christmas Eve will be our, our Christmas service. What I'd like to do tonight, because, um, Paul is again instructing this young pastor about things that he needs to instruct his own church about because the whole letter of 1 Timothy revolves around 1 Timothy 3, chapter 14 and 15, where, or verses 14 and 15, where Paul is saying, we need to teach people how they should behave in the house of God and what it means to be a part of the family of God and how to do church. Because we can't expect people just to be saved and know what that means. We've got to teach them. We've got to train them. And these are the things we need to teach them. So that's what Paul's doing. And what we see in 1 Timothy here too, in the passage we're going to look at tonight, is once again the emphasis on making sure that in the local church we teach the Word of God. And that we don't deviate from that. That that's what we teach. Because... We need it. And what Paul's going to say to Timothy is, it's so easy for people, even in the church that teaches the Word of God, to start getting off on some rabbit trail and getting themselves into trouble. So he's really focusing on that. And then, he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it, it brings to mind some of the false teaching that Timothy's had to deal with in Ephesus. And it deals with godliness. And we're going to talk about what is godliness. 
And then Paul says, this is what godliness really is. It's not what those false teachers tell you. It's what God has taught us. So what I'd like to do tonight, sort of to get the flow, because I don't always do this, is just to follow along with me in the Net Bible. That's, that's the version, obviously, that I use, and I'm gonna, or the translation I'm going to use and I'm going to read out from. And I'm going to begin almost towards the end of, of chapter 6, verse 2, right there where he says, teach them and exhort them about these things. That's where I'm going to start. And I'm going to go all the way down through verse 8. Now, I think we're going to get through all that tonight. We'll, we'll see. All right? Because there's a lot in these verses. So he says, teach them and exhort them about these things. Then chapter 6, verse 3. If someone spreads false teachings and does not agree with the sound words, that is, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the teaching that accords with godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in controversies and verbal disputes. This gives rise to envy, dissension, slanders, evil suspicions, and constant bickering by people corrupted in their minds and deprived of the truth. By the way, you'll notice before I keep reading that this ties in with what we talked about Sunday. How we are to be unified as the people of God. And Paul's pointing out that when we start teaching wrong doctrine, instead of unifying the people of God, it actually divides the people. And when people buy into false doctrine, it, it becomes divisive rather than a unifying factor like the Word of God can do. Then he goes on to say this. So I'm going to go back to the beginning of verse 5. And constant bickering by people corrupted in their minds and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a way of making a profit. Now godliness combined with contentment, that brings great profit. For we have brought nothing into this world, and so we cannot take a single thing out either. But if we have food and shelter, we will be satisfied with that. If there's a key phrase in all of this, it is found in 1 Timothy 6, 6. Godliness combined with contentment brings great profit. So we're going to talk about what is godliness and what is contentment. But let's go back to the beginning in chapter 6 at the end of verse 2. And we talked about this last week, but I want to talk about it again. Because notice Paul tells this young pastor that teaching the Word of God is a continual obligation of the pastor-teacher in a local church. That is what we are to concentrate on. We are to teach the Word. And in 2 Timothy, we learn that Paul tells Timothy that in the last days, people will turn their ears away from hearing the Word of God. They don't, they don't want to hear the Word of God. They want to be entertained. They want to have their ears tickled. They want to hear what they, uh, what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And so he says, you teach them and exhort them. The word exhort means to admonish and to warn. That's part of my responsibility as a pastor. It's not just to instruct, in a sense, to explain the Scriptures, but also, when it's appropriate, to admonish and warn all of us about the things that we need to be careful of. 
The things that we need to make sure we're doing or the things that we need to make sure we're not doing. And then he contrasts that with folks that are already in Ephesus, already in the church that Timothy is pastoring, who is spreading false teaching. Now, can I say something? The church hasn't been in existence that long. And yet notice, in a sense, the trouble that it's dealing with. I think sometimes we think, man, you know, look at the church today and all the things we've got to deal with. And I bet the early church, they didn't have... Yeah, they did. They had false teaching in their church. And Timothy was a good pastor and he was trained by a great guy named Paul. But there will always be those that come in to a local church and seek to, in a sense, insert their beliefs that don't line up with the Word of God. And you and I have to just very lovingly and very gently, but very firmly, just keep calling people back to the Bible. Say, but what's the Bible say? I don't really care what your opinion is. Let's see what the Bible says. Because notice Paul says, if someone spreads false teachings... Anything that deviates from the Word of God is what those words mean. Then we're in trouble. In fact, keep your finger there and go back to the very beginning of 1 Timothy. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. This is exactly why Paul told Timothy, Timothy, you can't cut and run. I know you're getting discouraged. I know you're getting frustrated at at the false teaching and the false teachers that you're having to deal with in Ephesus. But you've got to stay there. Who's going to teach them the Word of God if you don't stay there? So notice in verse 3, he says, I urged you, chapter 1, verse 3, when I was leaving for Macedonia, stay on. Don't leave. Don't quit. Don't run. Don't give up. Stay on in Ephesus and instruct certain people not to spread false teaching. Same Greek word as Paul uses over here now in Chapter 6, verse 3. That's what he's told him all along. Timothy, you've got people spreading things that are not lining up with the Word of God in your church. You've got to correct them. And you've got to keep teaching the Word of God. That's that's what we have to do at this church. There never comes a point in any local church where we can say, well... We don't have to be careful of false doctrine or false teaching creeping into the church. We always have to be careful of that. Always have to be aware of that. The enemy will seek to sow false teaching and false doctrine. And he'll use even other Christians who will come in but have dangerous ideas about what the Bible teaches that doesn't line up with the Word of God. And we have to keep coming back. I've actually had to have some hard conversations with people here at the Oasis who, obviously, they're not with us anymore. Because I've said, we, we can't tolerate that doctrine here, you see, because it doesn't line up with the Word of God. So, he goes on to say, if someone spreads false teaching and it does not agree with sound words, there's another important thing. This is a Greek word where we actually get our English word hygiene from. And yet what it means is spiritually healthy teaching or words. Words that will make us spiritually fit and healthy. Or words that will 
bring us into a sound condition, if you will. That's another meaning of this Greek word. Think of it as sort of uh, the oil change that a car has to go through every so many thousand miles. That as it runs, it obviously needs to uh, get sound again. Because after running, you know, we all can you know, start to show our wear and tear, and and we have to come back. So the Word of God is sort of like our continual oil change, if you will, our our tune-up. It's it's what realigns us all the time, continually. That's what sound words will do. that's That's a good translation, because it means something that makes us sound. When something is sound, it's in proper working order. It doesn't have any, like, uh, dysfunction to it or something that's not working right. That's what this Greek word means. It means something, the kind of words, the kind of teaching that will make one spiritually fit and healthy and will bring soundness to our life. And obviously, with soundness, too, we think of strength, we think of stability. If something is sound, then it's not going to easily, you know, we're going to talk about that Sunday. So that's what he's saying here. It's got to agree with that. And then he says, really, this all originated with our Lord Jesus. He's the one that taught us these things. We're just now passing along what we heard from Jesus himself. And can I say that that's one of the great um, tests, if you will, for whether a book or a letter was inserted into the Bible or not, one of the questions I get asked a lot from people is, why did these 66 books make it into the Bible and why did others not? Well, one of the tests was, if a book or a letter came along, even if it was by somebody that was legit, it had to already agree with what Jesus taught. If there was any disagreement with this letter or this book compared to what Jesus had taught, it got thrown out. Which makes perfect sense, you see. It always had to go back and line up with what Jesus taught. Or then in the New Testament, it had to agree with the 39 books of the Old Testament that had already been accepted and already passed the test. of It had to be written by a prophet or a recognized prophet in Israel, somebody that was a, you know, known spokesperson for God. That's the first test. Then it had to make sure that it agreed with all the other books that had already been accepted. If not, thrown out. So Paul's making that point here, you see. And that's why we have the books that we have and we don't have the other books. Because they taught things that did not line up with the existing Word of God. Alright, then he says... And with the teaching that accords, that has as its, as its goal, godliness. Now notice he mentions godliness three times in these few verses that we're going to look at tonight. So it's an important concept. What is godliness? Well, it's actually a hard word to sort of wrap our arms around because it, it, it has some different shades of meaning and, and, it actually had some meaning in the secular world, and then it started to be used by Christians in the New Testament, and it sort of took on a different flavor. So let me explain 
a little bit about what I believe the word godliness means. First of all, uh, we just we just expressed godliness just a few minutes ago. And not that that's the only way we could have expressed it, but that's one of the ways. Because godliness is, is talking about a heart response of worship to God. That's one of the big, if you will, definitions of godliness. It is a heart response of worship to God. It's not something that can come externally. And again, only God would know because we could fool other people and our heart might not be in it. But, but God is looking for godliness. And what godliness is from God's perspective is when our heart is responding to God. Whether it's in worship of singing, whether it's in just being thankful, whether it's in acknowledging who God is, He's my Lord, all of those things. It is the way our heart responds to God. And our heart should always be responding to God. As God moves, as God directs, as God leads, all of these things, that's godliness, you see. That's one thing. And then another, I think, great sort of definition to wrap our our heads around godliness is that it is devotion to God in action. That's what godliness is. It's not just devotion to God. It, it, it is devotion to God in action. There's gotta, it can't just be words. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be very active. But yet it's got to be devotion. Godliness speaks about our our consecration, our commitment, our devotion to God in action. You see. And so Paul here is saying to Timothy, if teaching doesn't lead people or challenge them or encourage them to that, then what good is it? Shouldn't all teaching be leading us to be more devoted worshipers of God in all aspects of our life? You see. And shouldn't it be leading us to be active in our heart response to God? Not just going through the motions, not just paying God lip service, but truly from the heart. This is what Paul talks about in other places. Serve God from the heart as to the Lord and not just to people. You see. Heart response of worship to God. That's what godliness is. So, he says, look, if what these other false teachers are teaching does not have as its goal godliness, then what good is it? And then he goes on to say, the people who are proposing these other teachings that don't lead people to a life of godliness, he says, first of all, they're conceited. They are blind with pride because they have deviated now from God's message and now they're teaching other things because they think they're the smartest people in the room or they've got something better and new than what God can do. And so instead of just teaching the Word of God, they're teaching what they want. Or, here's something even worse, they use the Word of God, but they use it to manipulate to their own ends. Not to godliness, but as going along with what we talked about Sunday from Scott's presentation, uh, many pastors will use the Word of God today to try to get people uh, to buy into the building programs of their church. 
Let's just say it that way. Using it for their own ends instead of just teaching the Word of God. So Paul says, they're blind with pride. Because any of us that think we know more than God and think that somehow we can deviate from God's message and we have something better than what God does, that's a prideful position to take. And then he says, and here I'll show you what it ends up happening. He says, really, though they think they know everything and that they're the smartest people in the room, he says they really understand nothing. Wow, that's, that's a pretty big indictment. And then he goes on to say, but they have an unhealthy interest in these other things. And by the way, to, to sort of parallel here what he said earlier about, about we need to be uh, living off of a, a sound word diet, if you will. Here he's using a word that speaks about un, an unhealthy diet. So, so look at it that way. In a sense, earlier he was saying, as Christians and as a pastor, we need to make sure that we are feeding ourselves good spiritual diet. Sound words. Words that bring spiritual health and fitness and all that. He said, but what these folks get off the track with is they start feeding on unhealthy spiritual things that don't make them fit or godly, you see. And so again, that goes back to You know, there is a parallel between the physical and the spiritual. And you and I all know, you know, if if we eat good food, then our bodies thank us for it and and we benefit from it. You know, we, we have more energy and all that. But if we eat junk food, then our bodies sort of rebel and they don't function as well. We're not in as sound of a condition, you see. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. If I give myself good spiritual food every day and I have a good spiritual diet, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to function spiritually at a higher level. But if I just eat junk and I am interested in unhealthy things out there rather than the Word of God, then Paul says, you got to teach your people. They're going to pay for that. That's not going to, it's not going to help them spiritually. And then he says, and here's what it also leads to. He said, it also leads to controversies. This is searching for things that end up being meaningless. There's really no meaning here. Investigating the meaningless. And then he says, verbal disputes. This is a war of words about trivial things. If you've been in churches long enough, you know that you've heard Christians do that. You've heard other Christians argue about things that really don't matter. Trivial things. Majoring on minor things rather than majoring on the major things, which, again, we talked about Sunday. That's how you keep the unity, is you major on the things that we agree with, and we, st- we don't get caught off on all these other side things that really, in the end, don't matter. Then he says, These things also give rise to envy, ill will, and grudges is what the word means. And then dissension, a continuous, or excuse me, a contentious spirit where people are always wrangling and arguing over things. Then he says slanders, verbal abuse, evil suspicions, and constant bickering, arguing and debating by people. Wow. 
Not a pretty picture, is it? That's what bad teaching and a bad spiritual diet will do for us. We start, we start going down these trails where we start splitting hairs and we start, because for, for many people, the most important thing is that we have to be right. Not the unity of the body. We have to be right. Everybody else has to know how smart I am and how much I know. That has to be the number one goal. No. According to what we learned Sunday in Ephesians, the number one goal is endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's the number one thing. Not allowing, even if I was the smartest person, it's not up to any of us to assert ourselves in a way where we start bringing division to the body by trying to get every other Christian to side with us on these things that really, in the end, are trivial. And they're not the major things. Now, again, stop here for a moment. This was happening 2,000 years ago. It wasn't like any church was perfect. This church at Ephesus had lots of problems. And it's interesting that we're studying a book about the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and then on Sunday, we're studying the letter of Paul to that same church. A few years later, obviously, the church was in a little bit better shape because Timothy just kept teaching the word and the false teachers left. And so the church became a little bit stronger because of it. Then he goes on to say, and this is interesting, he says, the people who go down this road have a corrupted mind. Now, this word is very interesting. It's actually a word that's used in the Greek language to describe rotting fruit. Fruit that, that, that is decayed or rotted. And it's like, ooh, I wouldn't want to eat that. Paul says, when you and I start feeding off the wrong thing, it literally rots our minds. Now think about that. That's why we as Christians have to even be careful about what we listen to and what we watch. Because Paul says, our minds can start to rot by watching and listening to the wrong things. It's like a piece of fruit that's been left out in the sun and it's all yucky and decayed. Paul says, that's what happens to people when they have a bad spiritual diet or they start being interested in unhealthy things. Their minds get corrupted. Instead of us being transformed by the renewing of our mind every day through the Word of God, we allow our mind to literally rot by exposing it to all this garbage. And then he says, they are then deprived of the truth. It doesn't mean that they couldn't have the truth in their life, but they literally cut themselves off. They cheat themselves. They rob themselves of the truth that could set them free because they occupy their minds with all of this garbage. You see. Wow, that's important, that principle. That's something that we all need to be aware of. If we're not focusing our minds on what's good, then we literally deprive our minds of accepting and receiving what's good. Wow. It's almost like we, we block it off. Can I say 
That's why, and I'll just use this as an example, that's why a Christian that spends six days filling their mind with garbage and then they seek to come into the house of God on Sunday and be engaged in worshiping God and truly receiving from the Word of God, get very little out of it. Because you can't overcome in your mind that six days of garbage and then expect to just flip a switch and come into the house of God and be right there, spiritually. It can't happen. That's why God says, you've got to focus on godliness and having a heart response of worship to me every day of the week. Not just on Sundays or Wednesdays or whenever, but all the time. And that's why it's so important. And then he says this. They've also gotten so messed up in their minds. And these, by the way, I believe that these are Christians. These aren't unbelievers. These are Christians who got so messed up in their mind that they accepted these false doctrines. And the reason I know that too, not only from the teaching of the Word of God, is I know that from 32 years as a pastor ex- experience. I've had so many people in churches over the years, even in churches where the Word of God was taught, who started listening to some speaker or got online somewhere and started to listen to all this garbage that didn't line up with the Word of God. And man, their Christian life just... And it just took a really sad turn. And notice what he says here. The people even in Ephesus at that day, they got caught up in supposing that godliness, devotion to the things of God, was a way of acquiring more and more material things. Guess what? Not much has changed in 2000. The health and wealth gospel. If we just devote ourselves to God, then God's going to give us more material things. Well, we have false teachers who teach that today. And their churches are filled with thousands of people. And there are Christians who buy into it because they want to be materially and physically blessed and they put that as a priority over the spiritual. Even though, like Paul said to, Tim, uh, to, uh, to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Oh, that's okay. But I want material, physical things. That's when I know I'm blessed. No. No, I mean, it's not that God won't give us those things, but notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, They suppose that godliness is a way of making a profit. But now, godliness, devotion to God in action, combined with contentment, brings great profit. That's real gain. Well, we've talked about what godliness is. Let's talk for just a second about what contentment is. Here's what it is. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It is getting to a place in our lives where we believe that we have all we need with Jesus. That's it. I don't need anything else because I have Jesus. And whatever Jesus chooses to give me will be enough. That's contentment. Not continually thinking, I need this and I want that. No, that's not contentment. Contentment is coming to a place where I have all I need in Jesus. Because he goes on to say in verse 7, 
do we forget that we brought nothing into this world? When those cute little babies are born out of our mothers, they come naked. Naked. They didn't bring anything into the world. And he says, we can't take a single thing out either. We don't leave with anything either. We don't take any of those, uh, any of that stuff with us. You see. So then he says, if we have food and shelter, by the way, those words speak about what God defines as adequate. Boy, what God defines as adequate in our life is probably different than what you and I define as adequate. God says, here's what you really need. But we seem to not be satisfied with what God wants to give us. So that's why we get ourselves in trouble. That's why we get ourselves in debt. Because what God wants to give us isn't enough. So we're really not content. We need more than what God wants to give us. But he says, if we have food and shelter, we will be satisfied. We will be content. It is enough with that. By the way, the other thing I want to point out before I go to one other scripture tonight is in verse 7 where he says, we have brought nothing into, notice these next two words, this world, which reminds us there's this world, but there's the world to come. And Paul says as a spiritual Christian, who's going after godliness and contentment in our lives, we're going to be more concerned about the world to come than we are this world. We're going to invest in eternity. We're going to be like Jesus and lay up treasure in heaven rather than treasure on the earth. So you can leave 1 Timothy. We'll come back there and pick it up next week, but I want you to turn to the book of Philippians, to chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13. And I will close by reading these verses and then making one comment. Paul talks about this very thing here at the end of the book of Philippians as well. But he does make an interesting point, one that we all need to be reminded of. Paul says in verse 11 of Philippians 4, I am not saying this because I'm in need. For I have, and here's the key that I want to speak about tonight, I have learned to be content in any circumstance. So he is, he is saying, look, as a Christian, I wasn't always content. I wasn't always just happy with just Jesus and whatever Jesus chose to give me. I, I didn't automatically get there. I had to learn how to be content. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. And then he says, I've experienced times of need, times of abundance. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing, I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. Which, by the way, you'll notice that we quote Philippians 4.13 a lot, but you'll notice what context it's in. The context is in him strengthening us to be content in him. And to truly come to a place where if I have Jesus and what Jesus gives me, that's all I need. I don't need anything else. Now, I want to go back in in closing to the word learned. It's a very interesting word. It is related very closely to the word disciple. Because remember, what, what is the definition of a disciple? A learner. And so notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying, here's how I learned to be content. I came to that realization by walking with Jesus every day as a disciple. Not just by being saved. 
not just by being a Christian. We don't become and learn contentment just by having Jesus as our Savior. We learn to be content by becoming a disciple of Jesus, a faithful follower of Jesus every day. And that's what Paul's saying. That's why Jesus said, my goal for the church, make disciples. Don't just get people saved, make disciples. Because it's only when you and I become disciples do we learn these things that are so important for us to learn, like contentment. Learning that Jesus is enough. And learning the sufficiency of Christ. That anything I'll ever want and ever need, I can find in Jesus. Again, I'll go back to maybe one of my favorite passages of Scripture. One that we all know. Go home and read it tonight for yourself. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Or I shall not want. Whatever translation you want to use. It basically means, if I have the Lord then I have everything I need. Godliness, Paul says, with contentment brings great profit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray, God, that we would always have a hunger and thirst for your word. Not for all the other things out there that we can occupy ourselves with, that we can watch, that we can listen to. God, help us to, in the short days that we have on this earth, truly allow our minds to center ourselves in You. Whether it's through worship songs, whether it's through prayer and spending time in Your presence talking to You, whether it's with the Word, whether it's with other Christians and just in fellowship with them. God, help us to to not spend so much time on the things that really aren't going to matter or the things that bring us to a place of spiritual unhealthiness in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be a disciple so that we can all learn the secret of contentment in our lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. See you next week.